So how is the liberation or freedom from clinging or the removal of clinging with reference to these five aggregates? How is that um, affected? What's the purpose of that? What's the benefit of that? So if these uh, five aggregates are considered the, the sum total of our conditioned experience. Mm. So uh, liberation is liberation from conditioned experience. Through penetrating, calming, penetrating and realization uh, within this realm of conditioned experience realizing the unconditioned so this this is then the uh, five aggregates are a way of summarizing a very multifaceted and dazzling and evocative and provocative uh, world of experience so getting it down to basics, the basic constituents. So you, in this analysis you can't go any further than this. Mm. It's the adherence to this that uh, generates the sense of a person in a world that they're neither entirely bonded to nor entirely separated from. Mm. This is suffering, stress, dislocation, disorientation, searching for orientation through a medium that can't provide it because it's always shifting and changing and sets up a basic duality which the self is always trying to find its place in the world somewhere mm. and this doesn't happen to a, no, it does happen to a degree but not to a complete utterly peaceful uh, released degree the degree which is possible to experience so the only place the only abiding really is the abiding of a the Buddhas have the rest of us aren't abiding we're just fidgeting <laughs> searching for the more comfortable spot <laughs> so what is this world of experience uh, very obviously what is experience there is consciousness it means uh, one is conscious of sights, sounds, thoughts, touches, tastes, and so on. Mm. And what is consciousness then? Uh, <laughs> we review it in a meditation experience more more deeply. We realize that there's an inclination and a turning. Something shifts, awareness intelligence, sensitivity shifts and attunes to the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. You particularly can notice this when you come out of meditation, when you're sitting with your eyes closed and then you you hear the bell and the resonance of sound.
comes in and then gives a mental signal. Ah, oh, it's time to. That's the end of that. And so that consciousness arises here. Then the mind, thinking mind, interprets. It wasn't doing that before. And then maybe the eyes, eyelids come open, and there's this kind of fractional moment when things are not that clear, and then the, the visual field as it manifests, and then the eyes focus on, create forms within a visual field. If you do it slowly enough, you realize at first it's just a, a visual field of lights, and and then within, pretty immediately, there's a tension or a contraction, and forms appear. And the eye focuses. Visual consciousness, having been uh, triggered, then activates to create a world of forms. First of all, it's triggered, the opening of the eyes, the indication is now the time to see things, and then it's triggered, and then it's activated, and then forms appear. Forms don't appear before the activation. Separate forms do not appear until that visual consciousness is activated. You have a memory of them, you may have an understanding that they're out there, that could be there. And just be, but when you've slowed things down in meditation, you can take it a little bit at a time. What you don't see isn't there. And as you open your eyes, you see that slightly, slightly, gently, a little at a time, kind of a swimming experience of lights, different colors, shades, degrees of light, intensities of light, and then there's an activation, triggering, and then forms appear. And then maybe one or two forms appear in a background which is of no particular significance. The forms stick out. This is how the world of visual form arises. And several processes in that. Uh, kind of this, the inclination towards visual consciousness. That inclination is called a sankara. It's an intention, an inclination towards visual consciousness. Mm. So that, that dependent upon that sankara arises consciousness. Right. So you said sankara pachaya vijnana, dependent upon sankara is consciousness. So if there was no inclination to see anything, that visual consciousness would not arise. And if there is an inclination, then the visual consciousness does arise. Sankara, dependent upon sankara, is the arising of consciousness. You're taking it very much at a moment at a time, direct experience, not the concept of consciousness, what is consciousness, but the actual experience of a specific form of consciousness, how does that happen? There's an inclination. It may it may not be a verbal, verbally motivated thing, it's almost instinctive inclination, you open your eyes, it triggers. And then, ding, the eyes immediately start focusing. Sometimes it's difficult to not focus them. You can restrain it and just let it all be a blur. You can practice like that by widening across the visual field just to see this 
whole visual field and notice the pull of to, fo- to form a focus. So that pull is a sankara. That's called attention, manasikara, that which inclines to forming a focus. That also is sankara. So one sankara, the original arising of it triggers the inclination to see, and then another input triggers the inclination to discern forms. And having discerned forms, then we start defining them. That's another inclination. That's so-and-so, so-and-so, that's a tree, that's... Sketches it in, adds to it. That's another set of Sankara inclinations. And then, of course, depending on that, we can then wonder what to do about it. Or, And that's another set of mental inclinations. So this Sankara thing is the activator that moves things along in reference to this this process of consciousness. As it moves things along, forms arise, and forms arise as, as, and uh, perceptions arise. That is, um, something is perceived, there's a perceiving experience, which is first just the acknowledgement, a recognition, which is non, non-verbal, just that, and then maybe the verbalization comes in after it. You recognize, and then there's a verbalization in the mind. Sometimes not. Uh, recognition as perception. And based upon that perception, then, you know, Sankara's, that's this person, that person with a name, and then I want to see her or him or how is she doing, or what's happening for her, him, so on. This is kind of more activations get going. And sanya is the meaning, the felt meaning, the impression, the recognition, the interpretation, the got it, aha, uh-huh, that's that. And then that's activated. Uh, and, uh, and then, depending upon that, we get further activations, start creating mental forms mental impressions, mental directions, more Sankara. So these are all winding, building up together, aren't they? And they're pretty mobile. So in this cascade, in this, mold, in this kind of flexing of all these, uh, uh, these uh, aggregates, it seems to be a, a solid entity. Mm. So this is why the meditation experience is so helpful to really actually directly know what happens when you have this uh, uh, five word dictionary makes it pretty simple Sankara is said to concoct the others concocts consciousness how does it concoct consciousness? Because it selects and determines which consciousness one's awareness should be directed through. So in that way it determines. It determines that in terms of the ethical quality, where the ethical quality of that consciousness, where the mind, one's awareness is streaming out, imbued with worry or fear, hostility, greed, gratification, search for something or the other, 
that also concocts the kind of consciousness that arises or adds to it. Mm-hmm. And then dependent upon the level of uh, station of consciousness, whether I was in sense consciousness or whether I was in deeper samadhi, where the sense consciousness is uh, uh, put aside, or then again, that's done. You know, that, that dwelling, that deepening of consciousness is affected through practice which the jitta now puts out through another channel, you could say, another inclination into the depths of the mind. So in this way, consciousness is concocted, fabricated, um, steered, uh, fashioned, mm, sankara through intention, inclination, and sometimes these become habitual, just locked. And sometimes these ethical qualities or lack of them become locked. One's consciousness is severely locked into profound states of uh, fear or irritation or gratification, urge. And it's become stuck. Mm. We may have several that it, it sticks in that and it frees up and sticks in an- another one. Mm. And this is because of um, perception. Perception also is concocted. Something is seen, the next time you see it you know what it is because you've seen it before. If you didn't, never saw it before, you didn't know what it was and then you get it. Oh, it's that. It's soft, it's round, you can sit on it, it's of what it is. Yeah. So now that means something. It's a perception, like an, a meaning. A, something is now recognized as being something. That's concocted. That means it took, it took a process of learning that. There was an intention, inclination to, to test it, to sample it, to touch it, to see it, to think about it, to ask somebody about it, then it was learned. So we build up this uh, library of perceptions, but they're all concocted. And they are hyper-concocted. So beyond pure uh, functional description, we get qualities such as luxurious, uh, wonderful, beautiful, um, interesting, attractive, so forth. Particularly, of course, with reference to the human form, human body. Merely concocted, imagined, uh, implanted. Uh, and the mind becomes hypnotized, inducted and hypnotized by such uh, meanings. And the amount of uh, stress and suffering and craving and fear and anxiety that can get generated around this, concoctions, concocting meanings around things, Uh, stigmatizing, fascinating. Mm. Feeling, of course, pleasure, pain. This also is established, Sankara, by having a, 
a, a living body with nerves. So if the nerves then deliver this signal and set up sets of reactions, that's, that's a bodily formation, a bodily concoction, something that's been fabricated into the body in order for functional life. They're not always accurate. Sometimes in neurological disorder you can body can experience in pain in a limb that's been severed it's no longer there and yet the, the nerve still tells me I've got a you know a painful arm when you don't actually have one mm. so this could be neurological impairment that indicates well this this signaling is not it's it's not an objective truth it's something that's established by life force itself more powerfully than that or more and in fact, more um, fabricated than it's mental feeling, which is generally the predominant uh, source of feeling, a mental feeling associated with what perceptions, liked, disliked, uh, handsome, not handsome, welcome, not welcome. Mm safe, not safe, Mm. useful, not useful, Uh, succeeding, not succeeding. These are sort of perceptions such as these give rise to profound surges of uh, pleasure and pain. It's concocted, isn't it? We really start to, you know, examine some of these perceptions they are what empty essentially mm, who's successful what does that mean who fails what does that mean it means surges of pleasure and pain really <laughs> yeah. and assumptions of accomplishment which is short-lived, and so on. So these, for these, of course, are very embedded in in our minds, and become profound sensitive points for triggering degrees of pleasure and pain. And because they're in the perceptual realm, they can be uh, the meanings can linger when, in terms of the world of sense contact. there's there's nothing actually happening on that level and yet one could be regurgitating the mind's contact could be regurgitating perceptions of inadequacy or or having failed or being wrong and they can be recycled time and time again and this recycling is Sankara something activates and turns this, these perceptions over and over and over and over again into our experience, into our awareness. As we all recognize. And it's the poignant quality of the feeling which itself is concocted through perceptions which are concocted through <laughs> and so on to give the direct experience of, of dukkha, pain, stress, suffering. And, and, and the mind is oppressed by what it, what's been concocted. 
heart is is congested by what's been concocted, perceptions have been concocted and and can wound and, and hamper, hinder. So this is why these aggregates have to be understood as concocted. Form is concocted. Mm. Visual form is concocted by the eye. Mm. Tactile form is con- con- concocted by touch. Mm. You get a series of sensations and that is interpreted as form, solid form. But actually if you contemplate sensations directly, they're not solid at all, they're vibrant. <coughs> Shifting, pulsing, tingling, moving, and as you uh, as you cultivate in terms of your your awareness and your pract- meditation practice, it's quite possible to soothe uh, the energies that stimulate these sensations. Mm, this is possible. It's also possible to soothe the chitta which is beset by perceptions, not sensations, but perceptions. It's possible to soothe the energies that keep stimulating those perceptions. Therefore, this, these stimulatings, which is sankara, activates sensations in the body, activates perceptions in the mind. This sankara can be stilled, calmed, soothed. And then the sensations of the body are no longer being activated and the body feels calm. Perceptions in the mind are no longer being stimulated. Mind feels calm. This is uh, Kaya Sankara, Chitta Sankara. Cultivating, practicing, accessing, managing, soothing. The Kaya Sankara, soothing the Chitta Sankara. So this stilling of sankharas, this cooling, soothing, handling, managing, directly assessing as they are, these sankharas is uh, uh, a fundamental feature of practice. So the citta is not constantly oppressed, hounded, harried, beguiled, hoodwinked, chased, teased and stimulated by concoctions, by fabrications. Therefore it's got a lot more space, and it's also light and clear, unoppressed. This clearing of hindrances is something to be known and experienced. The primary means of that is called samatha, calming, soothing, steadying. It's conducted with wisdom and discernment, with mindfulness, with goodwill, with kindness. There's a range of, it's really an attitude it's not so much a technique, though naturally you can find and adopt techniques to do that. It's very much an attitude and inclination. As the Buddha described it, samatha is how is this mind brought to stillness? How is it made still and steady? That's it. You can do that with metta, you can do that with breathing, you can do that with a number of processes of which you might have various particular styles and techniques of application. Processes, yeah, which we would call something like process of goodwill, 
And you might have various techniques of how to do that, or you might have no particular technique, just a simple sense of, well, just, you know, imagine or put aside ill will. Very simple technique for metta bhavana is just to bring up memories, associations, when one has experienced the quality of goodwill directed to oneself or directed to another. How did that feel? That's a sankara, a skillful sankara. That's a perception. Um, And that's a perception that leads to the dispelling of the perceptions of hostility and the activations of hostility. And in such an abiding, the sankharas of of defensiveness and agitation will cease and one instead will, will get something like a steadier, happier mind with an intent, the intention, which is a sankhara, of goodwill. May this abide, may this spread, may this be deepened in me and in others. So this is samatha, sankhara. Samatha is also concocted. Uh, sankhara intended, inclined. But it's the inclination, intention that leads to the dispelling of obstructive, hindering uh, sankharas and their perceptions. And this way this can lead to what we call jhana, which itself is concocted, uh, inclined, intended, and it establishes uh, perceptions of, of luminosity, comfort, warmth, firmness. And it's the mind and the body feel bright, light, flexible, luminous. And so these, these are then considered to be tremendous assets. The factors are paired. Both body and mind are become light. Body and mind become malleable, pliable, flexible, supple. Body and mind become um, wieldy. That is, you can direct them. They're, easy, they're responsive. They're not locked. They're not stuck. They're not slumped. They're not fixated. They can handle and direct. And they're very workable. And they become fit. They're strong. They're sharp. They, they're like trained you know, trained creatures, they're fit and light. And these are these qualities that then can be uh, uh, seen as directly opposed to the qualities of the hindrance where the mind is sluggish, turbulent, fixated, rigid, flaring, or, or whirling. And so we, when we experience this, this this hindrance experience concocted through greed, delusion and hatred of various forms in the dilute, uh, chronic, acute or diluted forms. You get these very messy states of body and mind. The somatic domain is agitated and trapped. The mind, the jitta is also agitated and trapped. Relief from these is uh, through skillful sankara. So in, in training this way we are directly handling these aggregates in a, in a, perhaps without you have know, to name them. <laughs> but you, that's what you're doing. You know, you're working around uh, these uh, uh, this phenomenal world. And the results. And the mind is called fit for work. And the 
fit for the work of deeper liberation. So our first level of practice is a sense of of um, soothing, calming the aggregates. Uh, and this already is, is a considerable liberation. That, uh, by this alone one will have put aside, seen the, the dangers and the menace of carelessness in in this world. And we'll probably have it begun to, very firmly begun to realize instinctively the necessity for, for ethics and the necess- necessity for a supportive livelihood because it's because of these two alone with nothing other than that, just these two alone will lead to severe contamination in one's body and mind. Yeah. Livelihood, if you're always uh, in situations where it's uh, frantic, uh, it's brutal, it's insensitive, uh, it's deceitful, and things of this nature, then one's bound to be affected by it. And most people find meditators, as you have all done and continue to do, do find themselves in renunciation without perhaps even having mentioned the word. The fact that you know, we bide here for weeks on end with uh, just the limited supply of food, which is we haven't chosen, which is just given to us t- twice a day, and that's it. That's called renunciation. Renunciation of a certain gratification instinct. Uh, renunciation in terms of entertainment, sexual activity, um, you know, it's it's powerful. This alone has tremendous power to it, because this alone will have an effect on on clarifying and purifying the mind, at least if not adding more burdens to it. This is something to to constantly see the value of and the blessing of when one can abide and train and sustain such a such a way of being. And it is a natural inclination, I think, for meditators. You just don't want a lot of entertainment anymore. It's just too much jangle. Mm. But of course, with renunciation, the theme is it's is the body has to eat. We need requisites to survive. But the mind itself is not fascinated by it. So the body has its needs. The mind is not fascinated or confused by it. Just because I eat so much food a day, this much food doesn't mean I'm a food fanatic. It's just, that's what bodies do. This is what's offered. But the mind doesn't feed upon it. Body feeds on it, the mind doesn't feed upon it. Mm. And so this is not asceticism, which doesn't understand the difference between the two. Uh, this sense of really training oneself and seeing what's happening and you know realize with every everything that one's engaged with there will be some quality of sankara in that some inclination some intending even if it's just to see something that's still an intention <laughs> you know so then what's good what's what's helpful to see or hear or incline one's mind towards. 
at least what's not helpful to start with that. <laughs> yeah. uh, then you well actually that then this is called meditation, isn't it? Just this determining to not put your your attention where it doesn't need to be. Hmm? And in that you're directly handling the potentials of consciousness to a more focused way in which one feels quite responsible. Not in a kind of heavy way, but you know, one's taking responsibility for what consciousness arises. If you don't put your eyes in it, it's not going to happen. <laughs> if you don't put your mind in it, it's not going to happen. Things are not there until you choose to put them there. <laughs> and of course, sometimes this choice we we don't realize we have the choice. It's just so locked. The mind just rushes in. We have it, The intention has become trapped. Therefore, it's often the case that one calls for the, the cutting or the severance or the dissolution or the restraining of Sankara. So you just don't, just stop. Don't do that. Just stop. Okay, now, now do it again. And now again. And now again. Now again until it's weakened and weakened. So this is also part of it to train to begin to see in this mass of of aggregates, as you can understand, the kingpin, the linchpin of it all is Sankara. Because that's the thing that keeps it all moving and dynamic and keeps building things up. And to say, you know, but we need Sankara, we need a, a clear intention in order to handle these. The intention is going the other way now, towards harmless and towards renunciation, towards simplicity, towards release. And one, the one uh, crucial place that we uh, build up to is to particularly to uh, having some say over the connections between sankara and perception, meanings, felt meanings. Because mm. this is what creates a whole huge burden on the mind. And to recognize that these felt meanings, which seem so uh, true and valid, have a certain validity to them. But it's very much a relative one, and it's subject to change. If we even uh, kind of come up with the the meaning of, well, who am I, for example? And you might think of yourself as how you see yourself now. 
how you experience yourself now. And then can you remember being a younger person? Anything from that? Uh, A child, little girl, how was that? And how was this? 10 years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, even vaguely the sense of very small, somewhat older, and different different energies and different qualities flowed through this, didn't they? When it was seven, and when it was 17, you may not get the years, but when it was, say, in that toddler stage, and then it was, you know, a teenager, full of juice and energy and drive, and then when it was kind of 27 or so, 25 to 30, it's beginning to find a particular pattern, it was getting its job livelihood together, and it was going on something, and then maybe flip forward, it was pretty much established in that, and it was getting a bit tired of it all. <laughs> or having children or something like that, another move stepped. And what was, what was the abiding person in that? Was there something? And you see all these different, any, every, any given time, if you'd have taken a, uh, a photograph or even like a psychological photograph, you'd say, well, that's, that's her. And then how much of her is there still in 10 years' time or 25 years' time? And, uh, no, that habit, something is still there, but it's now changed, it's softened, this has died down, this has become more strong, that's faded out. Who is that? And yet, there's some sense of, oh, that was me, that belongs to me. Well, the me was what we call jitta. Hmm? And jitta was carrying or conditioned by these various uh, wrappings and inclinations and flavorings and fabrications. And yet, so you just refer to what, what was the essential piece in that? That. And then what was the essential flavor of it? It was always trying to get something, find something, become something, hmm? handle something, get away from something. Yeah, it was always intending. Yeah. And then the perceptions that it adopted and moved through and rejected in that search. And what happens when you see this with dispassion? When you realize this with dispassion? You begin to recognize that was all understandable, but really not the point. Uh, None of this stuff was ever going to work, was it, really? (laughs) One didn't actually become anything apart from the same pattern persisted. Could there be a relinquishment of that? Could there not be a clinging, a stickiness with regard to perception? Through seeing it as it is, 
not disgusted, not fascinated, not averse, we're just kind of disenchanted with it all really. Just why bother? So even with this reviewing process one begin to get some insight realization. Still recognizing that any given day, time you can there can be a perception of you which yeah that's true in a way but i'm not really fascinated by it or bothered by it that much it's just that's what they call it and it changes And we can review form. Uh, so if you practice as you're meditating for deeper calm, for greater flexibility of mind, for greater agility, you just start to work on the form aggregate, sankara of form. Mm. See, perceptions are fleeting. Mm. And yet, uh, so... Uh, captivating because they give rise to some sense of solidity and of course they're not they're not solid and yet they give rise to some sense of that's who I am that's where I am now I know who I am and this uh, hunger tanha bhava tanha craving to be something is not easily uh, dismissed or relinquished but we might say, well, uh, the most solid thing that there is, surely it's this form. If anything is solid, it must be this. This is as solid as it's going to get. And you come into the experience of form. If you're really sitting in this very body most directly, you can. You can get, you notice, you know, sensations fluctuate, come and go. But the primary qualities that tell you you have a body at all, whether you're sitting, standing, reclining, moving around, the primary qualities, whatever the sensations which come and go, there's some sense of something feels, it occupies space, something, it's called the earth element, something feels, has a certain density to it. Right? You know, that's the edge of my body because the density drops away and then it's space outside that. It's this sense of occupying space a certain density is called the earth element that tells you you have a body it has fire it's, it's a certain degree of vibrancy energy in it the fire element it has a degree of warmth sometimes not enough warmth <laughs> sometimes too much warmth but it has a degree of whatever it is with you know, some some measurement of the warmth is pretty inevitable in a body. It always knows whether it's warm or not. Yeah, that means it's alive. Mm. That's also an experience of body. It has a sense of cohesion, which means it readily adopts this series of experiences, binds together to form a body. This is my feet, my arms, my hands, my head, all that sticks together into one lump this cohesive quality called the water element and something that happens to one part of it will have an effect on all of it it's united to that degree 
water element, air element, the degree of that which exerts a certain pressure. Most obviously breathing in and out pushes tightly, gently squeezes the body. So we feel something pressing within us, opening us up, then something subsiding and the pressure relieving. This is called the air element, this movement of pressure. So any form that we experience, bodily form, will have these in it. So it's not one thing at all, it's four at least. Uh. <laughs> if you to make the then you can you can practice with those. So for example you take the sense of particularly if you're standing it's very obvious that you get the most dominant impression is probably the impression of earth, the weight of the body becomes very significant. We feel a sense of weight because we're co- all the weight of our bodies coming down onto the feet. We feel the experience of weight. And you can't, if you work within that, and you really try to focus on balance. So, what is weight? Weight is a series of. Oh, accumulation of energies and sensations and a, and a probably a mental inclination. We don't like it. The mind doesn't like that. If you begin to relax the not liking or resisting or the holding on or the seeking support or the trying to feel differently, that, oh, that feels different. The mind begins to be more expansive, energy rises, the weight changes, weight lifts when it feels quite light because there's no resistance in terms of this element, this property. Suddenly the body becomes rather light and fluid even though it hasn't moved. Walking, you get mostly the dominant feature is the water element. The sense of things, the suppleness of the body as it flows along, the cohesiveness of it. You cultivate this till eventually you cultivate that. You know, the limbs disappear, the body, the, the visual, the anatomical form disappears. It's just a fluidity, fluidity lightly flowing through space. Mm-hmm. Sitting meditation is mostly about breathing, the air element. And you cultivate that, the sense of the, if you really cultivate that, then the body begins to disappear and just have a sense of the the light flow of breathing that's beginning to very lightly mm, send, I wouldn't say press, but begin to almost sponge energy through the body, through this form. The lightest kind of pressure just begins to extend uh, energy through the breathing energy through the bodily form. The body, anatomical body, begins to disappear mm. from the mind. Clearly, it's physically there, uh, but just just consider how much of your body do you hold in your mind? 
when you stand, you have the mental impression, I am standing. Uh, how long should I stand? My shoulders feel like this, my legs feel like that. These are mental perceptions, these are concoctions. When you breathe, when you're sitting there breathing, you have the mental impression, here I am sitting in the meditation hall doing Anapanasati. How should I do it? This is, this is chaos. <laughs> this is distraction. This is avoiding the point. The point is, there is breathing. What's that? Don't, don't concern oneself with other topics. There's bound to be hindrances arising if we go into the world of concoctions and perceptions. They're sticky. They attract hindrances to them. Because they're sticky like flypaper. Yeah. And this fabricated, personalized form is made is sticky, sticky with karma. So that's what occurs if we go to the personalized form when we meditate, either as a perception of our body or perception of myself meditating, there's this personalized form. And that's that's karmic. It means that's karmically formed, right? That's the memory identity from actions and intentions and life history and what happened. So that's that's karmic that's karmic the karmic footprint. And if we bring that back in, if we bring that in as, as we sit and meditate or so-called meditate, you know, you're actually um, attracting hindrances. Hindrances that were there when the karma was laid down. This was the incident that evoked fear, mistrust, ill will, disappointment, agitation, confusion, worry, craving, in minor or major degrees. Uh, this is the one that triggered off that feeling of loss, betrayal, disappointment, aloneness, uh, failure. The, if you put out the personality flypaper, the flies are going to land on it. <laughs> it's their job. <laughs> and it's not you're trying to, not trying to destroy something, it's just not to bring in something that isn't needed at this time. There doesn't need to be a person meditating. But certainly this, you know, form is there, and yet form is what? Just the flexing and fabricating of the elements. When you contemplate them, purifying the elements of resistance not resisting the experience of earth, of pressure, of weight, not resisting and concerning oneself and fascinated with these experiences of warmth or cold, not resisting it, not agitating around it, not labeling it as such, just practicing with it, making the mind open, malleable, pliable, clear. Hmm? 
So this is for one's immediate welfare in terms of the, the quality of calm and ease and also for one's further deliverance in that we insight occurs into the very momentary concocted and selfless nature of our experience of experience itself hmm? so it's said you know, when one cultivates loving kindness this quality this perception, this in- intention, this inclination, when thoroughly developed, eliminates the sense of ill will. Either one is the subject of ill will or one is the object of ill will. One feels disliked, unwelcome, mistrusted, or one dislikes, doesn't trust, is, doesn't welcome others. This quality is washed out, cleaned out. And one is fascinated by bodily appearance, one's own or others disappointed by it, confused by it, agitated by it, one contemplates the sign of the unattractiveness of the body. It's heavy, meaty, you know, heavy, meaty, squelchy, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lump. And when it gets sick, it really is pretty unpleasant. But it's still a lump, whatever. You know, you've really got to do quite a bit to to get it, kind of, kind of clean it and tidy it and preen it to make it something that seems something other than a lump. <laughs> <laughs> and it, always, it comes back to that, to the, you know. When you go to sleep, it goes back to feeling like a lump again. And you've got to get it out and drag it out and <laughs> clean it up again. So one contemplates this this sign of, and this dispels fascination, comparisons, anxiety, vanity, lust, and so forth. When one cultivates the sign, the meditation on mindfulness of breathing dispels the discursive movements of the mind. Very powerful because this really gets to the basis of uh, the agitations. The, the discursive, speculative, worrying, uh, fantasizing, constructing, proliferating, concocting qualities of mind. One cultivates the sign of impermanence. It said this leads to the realization of not self, and this realization dispels the conceit, I am. And this is Nibbana here and now. So within these aggregates, there is uh, definitely practice to do in terms of understanding what what's there, beginning to make some of this language work. What is a perception? How is that? Do you get it? Do you see the problem of it? Uh, do you see the skill of sustaining skillful perceptions? and the necessity to dissolve unskillful ones mm. and also to recognize skillful unskillful they are what do you see what sankara about they tend to form and generate and they're activations that tend to consolidate and create forms do you see that do you see the problem of it do you see the fascination with it do you see the danger of it 
you see the purification of it and the and the release from it. Mm. Make these things work. And just even this very coarse quality of form, there's much that can be done for one's happiness and freedom. What is this form? What does it actually feel like? Earth, air, fire, water. And where is the non-resistance to that? The openness, the inquiry, the, the clarification around that, the non-struggling with it, the soothing, the calming, the steadying of that. This will be for one's welfare and happiness. It will lead to a deep insight into the impermanent and concocted nature of form. Seeing this, one is relieved from that conceit, I am. And this is Nibbana, here and now. Thank mm-hmm. you.